Hello and welcome to Transforming Education, a podcast brought to you by VO. In this episode, I speak with Carl Honoré. Carl is the international best-selling author of several books. In 2004, Carl released In Praise of Slow, which catapulted Carl to becoming an in-demand keynote speaker on the slow movement all over the world. Carl is considered by many to be the godfather of the slow movement. Since then, Carl has released several other books, such as Under Pressure, which focuses on parenting, The Slow Fix, which focuses on solving complex problems, and Boulder, which focuses on aging. Carl has amassed millions of views on YouTube from his TED Talks on slowness, and I am lucky enough to have him with me today to understand his philosophy on slowness in education. Thank you so much for joining us today, and if you do like this episode, please do subscribe or give us a rating on whatever platform you are listening on. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Good morning, Carl. Um, It's so lovely to see you today. Thank you for joining me on the Transforming Education podcast. How are you today? Uh, Thanks very much. It's great to be here. I'm um, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to go. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, um, I obviously reached out to you fairly fairly recently to come on the podcast. I've been um, a fan of your books for some time, and uh, I think I first came across you probably about five or six years ago when you were doing a keynote at an educational conference, actually, in Sao Paulo in Brazil, which I was attending, um, and I read your read your book, In Praise of Slow, after that, and since then I've gone on to, to have a look at some of your other um, works, and I just think that some of the concepts that you talk about in terms of the slow movement and just really interesting discussion points uh, for the world of education. And hopefully today we can lean on your wisdom and insights around uh, around that. Does that sound okay? I'm all in. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so first, first things first, I was wondering if we could perhaps start with a bit of an explanation about what the slow movement is for our listeners. Sure. It's probably easier to start with what it's not, I think, for some people, because when people hear the word slow in our fast forward culture, they think stupid, lazy, unproductive, boring, unmodern, loser, right? And and it's the opposite of that, right? Um, Slow, when you talk about the slow movement, the capital S, it doesn't mean doing everything slowly. I mean, that would just be absurd, right? I'm not an extremist of slowness. I love speed, right? Faster is often better. We all know that, but the slow creed or the slow philosophy is about doing things at the right speed. So understanding that there are times for fast, but there are times to slow things down as well. Musicians talk about the tempo justo, the correct tempo for each piece of music. And that kind of gets at what slow is all about. It's finding the right tempo for the moment. And in a way, if you dig a little deeper, slow is a a mindset. It's quality over quantity. It's being present in the moment doing one thing at a time. If you remember when we used to do that, ultimately slow really is about doing everything not as fast as possible, but as well as possible. So a super simple idea at its core, but one with the power to revolutionize and supercharge everything you do. Yeah, it's really transformative idea. It reminds me a lot, to be honest, of things like Aristotelian virtue ethics, where it's kind of like the middle middle pathway, but um, I can see why the emphasis is on slowness because our society is so far in the extreme at the moment where we're doing everything as quickly as we possibly can. You almost need that that message to cut through and, and to, to put forward what is essentially quite a pragmatic um, philosophy on, on living well. Yeah, I, I 
as you say that, I think there's there's a couple of parallels. I mean, it's like saying Black Lives Matter. Of course, mm. all lives matter, but in yeah. a society which has put a greater premium or less premium on Black lives, you need to shout Black Lives Matter. It's the same thing with feminism, right? Feminism, in my conception of it anyway, is you know th that everybody shares the same rights and the same opportunities and so on. But of course, mm -hmm. in a patriarchy, you've got to shout, you've got to call it feminist. You can't call it equalism because that doesn't really work or it's boring. Or so, so in a in a, in a society enthralled to speed, where the virus of hurry has infected every corner of our lives, you have to fly the flag of slow. Hence, the slow movement. And how do you think this idea of slowness or moving at this tempo giusto, um, as you talk about the right speed, can be applied to the world of education from what you've seen, the work that you've done in schools and, and uh, in educational institutions? Uh, so many, so many ways uh, where to start. I suppose let's start with the teacher, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, doctor, heal thyself. <clears throat> you have to be the change you want to see in the world. If a teacher is overwrought, over-distracted, over-stimulated, over-caffeinated, <laughs> overworked, mm -hmm. uh, unable to focus, then you're, as a teacher, you won't be able to do what you need to do in the classroom, right? You simply oh. won't, right? You won't be able to deliver what I would call an well, a slow education or an education worthy of the name. So the, whenever I talk about education, the starting point, I think, always has to be the teacher, sort of slowing yourself down as a teacher so that when you go into that classroom, you can listen, you can observe, you can hold ideas, let them sit and simmer without feeling you have to jump in and get through to the next thing as quickly as possible. So you just bring a, a more healthy, more useful, more human tempo to the classroom. So that would be the starting point would be teachers. But then, of course, there's a million other ways you can go with slow education. You know, I, I think trimming the curriculum, not so much content, you know, mm -hmm. making uh, the teaching of skills, at, you know, the, the priority and the content almost the way to get there rather than the content being an end in itself. Um, I mean, yeah, we, we, we've got time to unpack lots of different ones, but there's there's just so many ways of getting away from what we have now, I think, in the education system in so many countries, which is uh, turning the school experience into a high pressure assembly line, right? Where kids are stuffed with academics younger and younger than tested over and over and over again until exam scores become more important than learning itself, right? Mm -hmm. So if you bring slow to that equation, you're flipping everything around. You're saying, actually, what's really important here is, is honoring and treating and teaching the whole child and not just stuffing him or her with, you know, content and then testing them on how well they remember it. So let's unpack that that thought process around teachers first and foremost mm. and there's a sense of irony to this because i was nodding along when you were talking about being overworked and over caffeinated while sipping a cup of coffee um, <laughs> but i think uh what you were talking about there about the sense of teachers being overworked and uh, overstimulated a lot of that stems from from workload so from your experience of of working with um with schools around the world wh where have you seen things work really well in terms of reducing that workload and where school leaders have been able to adapt that slow philosophy and slow um, yeah. way of working a bit more effectively within their schools? Well, <clears throat> there are two things at play here. One is the macro situation or structure you find yourself in. So whether you're in the UK or Canada or Spain, or whatever, you've got to, you're, for, you're working within certain general parameters, right? Um, so on that, on that level, I think, 
the question then becomes, well, which countries can we look to to learn lessons from? And I think the obvious one when you talk about slow education is Finland, right? Mm. Where, um, you know, children start school in the year in which they turn seven. They do less homework than other kids. Uh, they don't have standardized exams or very few of them. And coming back to teachers, teachers are, number one, very well educated, right? They're, most of them are educated up to, um, you know, sort of graduate level. And they're also given a lot of freedom to mm. deliver the curriculum in the way that they feel works for the pupils in the classroom sitting there in front of them. And then they're not weighed down with tons of assessments and boxes to tick. You know, they're given a lot of freedom. They're, they're well-educated. And then they're given the trust and the space to go out and deliver the content in the best way possible. So I think Finland is a shining example of what you could do with a slow lens when you think about education. <clears throat> Interestingly, the other side of the other end traditionally of that spectrum has often been Singapore, yeah. which is famous for ha- also having a very successful education system. I mean, just in a very different way, yeah. Delivering it very differently with a kind of high pressure, lots of tutoring, lots of exams, yeah. very competitive. But th- the interesting thing is that uh, Singapore itself has undergone in the last or has been undergoing in the last few years a quiet revolution in its own education system, becoming much more like the Finnish system. They've been they've moved away. They're putting less emphasis on exam grades and marks. Uh, they're putting much more emphasis on teamwork, collaboration, creativity, uh, time to uh, process and metabolize what children have learned and con- and confronted in the classroom, uh, journaling, all reflection rather than just reaction. So even you know Singapore, which had astonishingly good international you know PISA scores, right, the ones that compare different countries. Finland was up there too, but you had two different ways of getting there. It's interesting that Finland has not made its system more high pressure, more tutoring. You know, it's stuck with, to its guns and is carrying on doing very well. But at the other end, you've got Singapore making itself a little bit more finished, if you like. And I would say you could put that as making itself a little bit more slow. So I think that's a, those are two examples of why slow works, right? Especially in a fast moving, nimble, highly competitive workplace you need people who can who can slow down who can push pause see the big picture join the dots think listen collaborate all the stuff we're always being told you need in workplace that's what slow education delivers so you've got it you're getting it now in 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 its own way in singapore you're seeing it in finland and then so that's the macro level but i think with even within systems that militate against slow there's always room i think for individual schools with a an imaginative, courageous, and visionary head to make changes, right? Because y- y- you always have some wiggle room on the content, how much there is, what you can you can trim it back, streamline it, create more space for for debate, for reflection, for processing what people have learned. So I, I, I've seen many individual schools in countries around the world where a head teacher has said, you know what, this isn't working. Within the parameters we're forced to operate, we're going to find ways to take down the workload, give teachers more time to relax, recharge, refresh, and and teach rather than chase their tails in some endless merry-go-round of red tape box ticking. I want to focus a little bit on what you're talking about there in terms of reflection. I know in the past I've heard you speak about you know, reflection being where the magic happens uh, in terms of learning. And, you know, that's kind of backed up by research studies which uh, come out all the time. We know that metacognition is one of the um, most effective ways of improving learning within schools. And that's essentially the the concept of students being able to 
understand their own learning through through reflection and understand the process of their own learning. Um, how do you think we can increase the value of reflection within a fast-moving society, mm-hmm. not just within education, but you know, beyond education? Where do you think that that's that starts in terms of seeing the value of reflection within a society where everything that we do is about getting those quick results? Where does it start? I think it starts in schools, right? It starts with the young. It starts as soon as possible, exposing children to the idea that racing on a treadmill constantly, you know, it, it it doesn't work, right? That you, yes, you need sometimes to go fast. You've got to sprint here and there, but there, at other times you have to push pause. You've got to stop. You've got to step back. You've got to let things percolate, let them simmer so that you can then come back to the faster moments, better equipped with more context, with more understanding. So I think, you know, something as, as simple as a teacher, and this is something one teacher can do in a, even in a school that is totally obsessed with speed and, and fast education is just to set aside you know, five minutes in the day to invite their pupils. No, I think every teacher can find five minutes to say, look, we're just going to, and call it what you like, call it a reflection moment, call it a thinking time, or just a time to pause it, just sort of inculcate the idea that especially in a world where everything is moving so fast and things are coming at you from all angles, that the way to navigate that best is to cultivate the art of carving out moments of reflection, just to stop to see, to think, to feel, to observe, to understand. So just start building that habit really young. You know, you can start in the first year, you know, or the second year of school and just get them sit, sit down and just think. Because that's something those children will never have done, <laughs> probably most of them outside the classroom. They will have just been raced from one activity to the next, possibly with an iPad or a phone in their hand, a, a distracted parent, a screen on somewhere in the house. Give them that gift of, of silence, of slowness. And I think because it's so good for human beings, they will respond to it. So you start building that up early. And I think over time that will spill out into the culture in general. I mean, we can't just do it with children. We, you, that's why you see companies carving up quiet times and spaces for staff to reflect. So it's happening everywhere. But you asked, where would we start? I think let's start with our kids. No, that's it's such a, yeah, such a salient way of looking at it. Um, I think the challenge that so many people have nowadays in schools is as you were saying before the curriculum is just so so dense there's so much content to cover um and there's obviously this pressure to to make sure that they they get their their students to get through the test and to to get those scores which they're measured on for offset and so on and so forth but um hopefully that is starting to shift from what from what i've seen with there being you know, less of a focus on some of the workload pressures that there were in the past within within schools like written marking, and which allows teachers more space to to be creative. And uh, in terms of curriculum, you know, as you say, schools do have some freedom there to to uh, to dictate at their own pace what they can what they can do with that curriculum. I know you do a lot of work with schools uh, um, around the world. And um, from from what you've seen, um, in terms of kind of cutting down the curriculum, have you seen any examples of really great practice um, from your own perspective of where that has worked really well? 
Yeah, well, there was a school in in Seville, a sort of secondary school in Spain that I, I did a bit of work with who were finding themselves overwhelmed by curriculum and by, by content. And they, they realized that it was because they were never asking whether the content made sense. They just, every new bit of content went in and, and, and nothing that was there before went out. So they had no filter. They had no process by which they weighed up what needed to be there. What was there just stayed and what came new just got added and added and added until they got to a point where they just felt like it was just gridlock. It was a critical mass of content and nobody was learning anything. It was just tail chasing. So they decided to set aside a a time at the beginning of the year and halfway through, they're just like a content um, powwow or um, they call it uh, um, summit, content summit in Spanish. It works as alliteration in Spanish. And they would just sit down and say, well, what do we need? What do we need to have? What do we need to be? What do we really need to be teaching here, given the exam system and so on? And what can we draw? And they found that they were able across most subjects to to trim back, right, as much as 30 percent in some cases. So sometimes it's just enough for the staff to just stop for a moment, sit around the table together and say, "Okay, let's look at the big picture. What what is the system actually demanding of us? How are we translating that into, into the classroom on the ground? And then fi- finding where there's this often a sort of short circuit between those two things and how you can parlay that short circuit into a a kind of core, a content reduction program, right? Where you just trim here, cut a bit there and open up some space and oxygen for, for debate, for reflection, for all the other stuff that makes the content sing and come alive. You see this kind of approach all the time in the world of business, you know, with entrepreneurs where the most successful entrepreneurs are always the people that can really hyper-focus yes, on, yes. on the things that matter most. And they, they kind of plan their diary just to do things that are really important towards moving yeah. that needle forward, um, as opposed to kind of juggling all of these all of these balls all the time. Well, one, one of my favorite quotes comes from Warren Buffett, the legendary investor, who said mm-hmm. once, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything, right? <laughs> Which I think gets it, is a very useful life lesson, I think, for all of us, because most things we do are not that important, let's be honest. I mean, none of us are that important, and most of the stuff we feel we have to do is not that crucial. Three months from now, we won't even remember having done it, and it will have left almost no dent in our lives. Uh, and yet at the time, we sort of feel, I don't know, for lots of different reasons, cultural reasons, we're terrified of unstructured time, we're, we're horrified at the prospect of wasting time. This is a culture that puts such a premium on being busy and yeah. active and doing stuff instead of just being, right? So we end up being human doings instead of human beings. And I think that should be one of the main aims of education is to raise a generation of human beings, not human doings. <laughs> no, I, it is a strange thing to just be in, in our society nowadays. I was just said to you earlier, though, I've been on a, a trip recently to a conference in, in Canada, where you're from. And I, I noticed um, when I was on on the train down to London, um, you know, everyone's kind of on their phones. They're all mm-hmm. looking at their phones on the train. And there's one person just kind of like not on, their, uh, not on their phone, just kind of looking around. I was just thinking, what are they doing? Just looking at the world? <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> but, <laughs> what you are you know, doing? Are you wasting it, it's just it's, it's how yeah. far we've gone now where it's almost weird to just be. Yeah. You know, you've got to be active and doing something all the time, even in that, even in an environment where you literally can't really do anything. You're not driving the train. You're sat in the train. You have no control. 
you're waiting to get from A to B, yet you still it still feels weird if you're not kind of engaging with something on a screen. You can't just sit there and just look around. Yeah. Um, when in fact, in fact, the, the best thing for you is to do that. There's a, I love the metaphor of the, you know, that little game, uh, handheld game, not screen, you know, the, I forget what it's called. It's like a little, it's a, it's a grid with little squares you move around and you have to move them Tetris. around. And what's it? Is it Tetris? I think it might be Tetris. Well, you do it by hand, right? So you've got these okay. little blocks and there's always one empty space, which allows you to move everything else around so you can create the image. And, and that one empty space is the equivalent of what you just described there is sitting in the train, looking out the window, letting your mind wander. It's not wasted time. <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's that pivot. It's that, that well, it's, it's the empty space. I mean, it, but empty in our culture sounds so wrong, but empty in that mm. sense is, is, it's is a glorious, negative, right? there's a it's negative liberating. connotation to, to the word. Yeah, isn't exactly. It's but not, it's, what you need. it's the yeah. yin and yang. It's the thing that allows you to arrange everything else in your life in the right pattern. If you don't have that empty space, you can't move any of the other blocks around. <laughs> So it's kind of, I guess there's a bigger fight here in our culture, which is the one I'm engaged in, which is to reclaim the right and the and the and the, and the um the power of of doing nothing, right? Of just simply being. And I think that is at the cornerstone of a life well lived. I mean, Socrates, I think I talked about that, like the life examined life. I mean, you can't examine your life if you're if you're your diary is literally book every single minute, right? You need those spaces when you just switch off you find a different mode you turn into a different gear and i think that should that's absolutely crucial at any stage of life but maybe i'm just gonna say maybe more important in education but i don't know that it is it's just a human need right well and it's we know from cognitive science and and learning that you know you need that that space to, to kind of cement ideas and some of your most creative ideas happen when you have that time time to think mm -hmm. um you know if you're on if you're on the go all the time you can't be thinking creatively and thinking these big big ideas you're just thinking about what you're going to be doing next on the specific task that you yeah. were and, and that's why whenever I, I whenever i do any kind of event i, I usually ask the audience um, a simple question which is when do your best ideas usually come to you and and I've asked that question to you know teachers in Sydney, lawyers in London, bankers in New York, you name it, and no one has ever said my best ideas come when I'm juggling 45 emails or yeah. racing to meet a deadline with the boss breathing down my neck. They, well, you know, what the number one answer they give, the number one answer people give is my best ideas come in the shower, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is the one time when you you don't have a phone to where you just are just there. You're just yeah. you know, um, or they say you know when I'm walking the dog or swinging in a hammock on vacation or gazing out the window on a long bus ride those slow moments they are the they are the the magic that unlock the connections the deeper thinking all the stuff that we want to foster in children and all of us right is that lifelong learning is you need those slow moments otherwise you're just racing through your life instead of living it so talking about lifelong learning obviously you, you've written a book more recently called boulder which is all about aging and the the idea of how aging can be seen as quite a negative thing within our society, but you argue a more optimistic case for, for aging. And and we spoke earlier about how I'm wearing um, a hockey jersey today about uh, for the Toronto Maple Leafs, which is a team that you detest. And um, <laughs> no, I don't detest them. I I pity them. <laughs> pity them. Um, and I kind of felt like I needed to wear this today because in the beginning of your book, you talk about how you first had your uh, uh, kind of 
existential epiphany of mortality, so we say, when you were playing a, an ice hockey game in Gateshead, which is where I'm based. Oh, um, really? Oh, funny. <laughs> <That's moral. laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you, you write about how, you know, you're playing ice hockey and one of the, uh, one of the players pointed out that you were the oldest person on the team and it got you thinking about the whole question of, of aging, which, which went on to, which um, prompted you to write the rest of the book. And um, in the book, obviously you talk about lots of different elements to aging and how society sees it as somewhat of a negative thing. Uh, and, and you bring up this case study about cyclists, which I thought was really interesting as being one of the sports where you can actually see improvements over time. You know, you can have 50 year old cyclists who's faster than when they were 35 and so on and so forth, which kind of turns those um, assumptions on aging uh, on their head. So I guess the question that I wanted to pose to you is how can we embrace um, lifelong learning more effectively within our society and, and mm. you know, and to not write older people off as, They've, they've learned what they need to learn and, and they're done. You know, they're just going to keep working until they retire and pay off their mortgage. How do we change that that mindset so that older people yeah. see people that can learn just as much as, as younger people? I, I think, um, well, I think there are, there are lots of things we can do. We can start with public campaigns, right? Just as we've had against racism or, you know, sexism or, you know, all these campaigns we've had over the years or against smoking, anything like that, a pub, some kind of public campaign to make the case that aging is not a punishment, it's not a disease, it's the most natural thing in the world, and that it's not all downhill from 35 or 40, right? That as you grow older, of course, you know, some things get worse. There's no, no, no getting away from that. But many things stay the same, and, 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 and a lot actually get better. And one of them is learning, right? We can carry on learning right up to the end of our lives. Uh, and in some ways, we may even learn better because we bring more context, more experience, more depth and texture to the way we learn. So, so some, in some ways, learning can be can be more uh, rich later in later life. And actually, just to flip it around there for a moment, when you talk about ways to age better, learning is near the top of that list because exposing yourself to novelty, uh, learning new things, that keeps you cognitively and physically sharp and fit, right? It makes you well, whatever age you are. So it's something we should all be aspiring to. We should be fostering and promoting as a society. So public public campaigns will be a starting point. I think we should also have, we need to rethink our education systems, right? They're set up in such age silos, right? Obviously in the school system, you're, you're locked into your one-year cohort. You get into university and that's predominantly set up just because of the way the calendar works and every the infrastructure is set up for people in their late teens, early twenties. I think at the university tertiary education level, we need to throw that wide open so that people of all ages can dip in and out of the university pool at any time. Mm. And so they don't have to do a four year degree, right? They could do a four month refresher or uh, a taster on a new subject they'd never tackled before and make it easier rather than feeling you've got to go and do a whole three, four-year degree or whatever. So loosen up and make more flexible tertiary education. I, I think another thing we can do is, um, well, getting back to this idea of age silos, is to mix up the generations more, right? If you start, because one of the things that allows ageist stereotypes to flourish, that, that, that permits the cult of youth to get its icy fingers around our neck and, and squeeze, is that we are cut off from older people, right? You know, we just, throughout human history, people of all ages mixed. They mixed 
in the fields, in markets, in homes, and festivals everywhere, right? Then certainly, the yeah, certainly the in the West, you know, where where yeah. we where we live, yeah. But I know there are other cultures where it's it's still more more mixed in society. It is, but it, but it's not as mixed as you think. I mean, certainly traditional societies around the world totally mixed. But if you go, you know. Yeah, Eastern cultures, where, 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 where Asia, yes, there's more mixing there, but even there, the cult of youth has taken hold in a way that would have been, I think, unimaginable 20, 30, 40 years ago. So just as a general rule, mixing with older generations, I think, or different generations, I mean, that's the best way to take down stereotypes, right, is to get the, to know the people being stereotyped. So if you find yourself only ever exposed to people in your five-year age cohort, you're not going to be able to conceive of carrying on learning 10, 15 years from now, right? You just won't. But if you move in circles where people are 20, 30 years older than you and you see them mm-hmm. doing a, you know, an evening course or learning a new skill or teaching someone something, then that becomes permissible and possible. So I would say break down those ageist, ageism silos, wherever they are, mix people up more. And that's another way to help Um make lifelong learning something we can all aspire to that's yeah that's so interesting and and i mean within my within my role i do a lot of work with schools but i also do a lot of work with companies who have learning and development teams who who focus on on learning for um their workforce which can be people from all kinds of different backgrounds it could be people that just left school at 18 or it could be you mm-hmm. know people who are in their 50s or 60s in the workplace and they're still kind of learning and, and doing qualifications and um, I, I know that there's uh, there's more and more of a focus on that uh, with apprenticeships coming through for people at all different ages. So uh, hopefully, you know, we can see the system kind of uh, take on board some of your your thoughts and philosophies uh, for for older people as as well as we progress over time. I think I think that it will, and and one reason for that is just is just sheer demographics, right? The population is aging. You pick up a newspaper anywhere in the developed world now, and you'll see the two words in the headlines: talent shortage, right? Companies everywhere struggling to hire workers, find enough staff, and yet at the same time, we've got this vast untapped reservoir of older talent who've been frozen out of the workplace pushed to the off ramp because of ageism, because of the cult of youth. So we've got this these two problems: talent shortage underused talent of older people the obvious thing is to bring those things together and they are being brought together and one way to do that is is tapping into that whole lifelong learning thing which as you say you see more and more companies opening their doors bringing back older people saying you know we're going to tap your experience or we're going to teach you new stuff because we know you can learn it too uh, and you will bring a different lens and a different angle to the party because of your your age but you can learn just as well as someone in their 20 you know mid 20s and having you in your 60s alongside that person in their 20s learning that's going to make us a stronger more thriving company so yeah i feel optimistic i think we'll turn this around i feel you almost get in our society you almost get punished at, at both ends of the spectrum so you know when you when you're young uh, people assume that you know you you not learning as much as they did years and years ago and you know yeah. you're impulsive right, yeah. and so on and so forth and then when you're really old people you you know you have that ageism and people question uh, i think in your book you mentioned about mark zuckerberg just saying younger people are just smarter and there's that kind of yeah uh, thought yeah. process like, sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and you touched on brexit as well and the you know the way people um kind of the way people thought about older people after after that vote went through and kind of punishing that 
that area too. And I'm kind of in the sweet spot in that middle age bracket where you're kind of not seen as impulsive by older people and kind of respected by younger people, but you don't have any time to appreciate it because you got toddlers, right? <laughs> you're getting pulled in every direction. It's middle age. Yeah, I don't feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I know from reading In Praise of Slow, you first started writing that book because you were in the position of your life that I'm in now, which is you've got young children and you're just, everything's so manic and crazy. And uh, I opened up to you on LinkedIn recently and said, I had a crazy week and reading your book was the perfect therapy for me when I was on on the train down to London for a load of conferences. So kind of aside from education, as someone who's been through all of that pain, have you got any tips for me to, uh, to kind of live well um, whilst I'm in this crazy manic period of my life? Yeah. Some fast tips for slowing down. You mean? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, where do we start? Let's pick up or pull in a thread that we had earlier on of, of doing less, right? Um, we talked about trimming content. We talked about uh, Warren Buffett saying no to things. Just do less, right? Just do a kind of triage every day or a couple every days. All the stuff that's coming at you, just take a little moment to pause and everything that's that's demanding or asking for time in your diary, ask yourself, is this important? Will it matter three months from now? And you'd be surprised how many things the answer will be no to that, right? But if you don't have that little pause moment, they go straight in your diary. And next thing you know, you've got a 29-hour day. So just make sure you do like do less, right? Do less, but have a little mechanism where you stop, ask, triage, and, and just focus on the stuff that's important. So that would be number one. Number two, we haven't touched on it much, just glancingly, but technology, right? Just use that off button. Become that person on the train who's looking out the window. You know, just wherever you, you can turn off that's i mean that's my total i have an eye you know i love the gadgets i've got them all they're great all the time right i'll tell you what i've done recently which has been absolutely life-changing because i didn't realize before but you can change the settings on whatsapp and some of your other other apps so that you stop getting notifications so instead of the phone just kind of buzzing yeah. all the time whenever things are coming through it means that you have to physically check and then you see that you've got, had notifications, which has been been uh, been quite transformative. So I had no idea you could do that before. Really? Uh, okay, yeah, I know that's funny because I, I that's one of my main tips when I talk about tech is turn off all notifications. Just do it right now. Like as soon as this conference is over, <laughs> turn them all off. And it's a total game changer because it just, as you say, it means you decide when you're going to be distracted or move. And you just and so mine are permanently off. And I. I've had them off for years and I have never missed an important call or message, nothing, right? Uh, ever. Touch wood. <laughs> but, you know, you can set it, you know, with do not disturb function so that if, you know, absolutely one person can get through to you in an emergency. Of course, there's nuances here, but basically turn off notifications. Absolutely. Another tip I would give is always incorporate some kind of slow ritual into your life. And that could be anything, could be reading poetry or sketching. I love to sketch things. I'm really bad at it, but it helps me focus and slow down and look at things. Um, it could be you know, knitting or yoga or something that just you build it into your schedule and it just inoculates you against the virus of hurry. And then just a final tip. I mean, there's many more, but just one other that comes to mind is mother nature, right? Just get out into nature. We know the science is super clear on this, that being in green space, mother nature, it soothes us, it reduces stress, it calms us down, it just slows us down, right? And you don't have to 
go out to the Rockies and go back country, right? I mean, that's great, but you can just go into a park, right? Or sit in a garden um, and just have some green space around you. And that can change the tenor and the tone of the moment and set a different vibe for the day, a slower vibe. Such a lovely, lovely way to think, think about it. I've, I've been trying to do that recently. I know that in Japan, they have a, a word for that, don't they? It's forest bathing. Forest bathing, they call it. There. Yeah, the, the, I, I knew you'd know about it. So you're an incredibly worldly man. Um, and that that uh, that process of going into a green space and just soaking in that environment kind of calm you down, decompress. And, to, yeah. and the Japanese also have they also have a word karoshi, which means death from overwork. So I know very ironically, <laughs> to, yeah. the same, you know, two ends of of a, of a very long spectrum. So um, yeah, I mean, I think Japan, having gone through a lot of that fast, always on stuff, is. Is, is 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 rallying to something a little more slow and a little more human, a little more sustainable, and, and that's forest bathing. Less forest, less karoshi, more forest bathing. I'm sorry we've uh, digressed a bit from the world of education to kind of personal tips for myself in terms of uh, functioning better as a human adult. But I wanted to to touch upon that a little bit because I know a lot of the problems that we have within the education system are, are human based. You know, a lot of the, a lot of them come from overwork. Uh, for yeah. teachers and leaders and staff. And sometimes it is just about, by, as well as finding tips for the bigger picture and the system as a whole, it is as well uh, a process of finding tips to slow down for on an individual level, on a micro level, um, to, to really help and improve well-being in, in, in the classroom and in the learning environment. So hopefully, you know, some of our listeners can, can take some of those ideas away that, that you've mentioned there. And, and certainly from my experience, turning notifications off, what game changer that's been. Yeah. And that's so simple. That's there for everyone. Right. And yeah, if you want, if you, if you want one takeaway, maybe today, that could be it. That could be the one everybody could do right now or not right now. Cause we don't want them doing that while they're listening to the podcast. Monotasking is another <laughs> tip, right? One thing at a time, because human beings, we can't multitask. It's just a myth. Um, and I'm sure there'll be some women listening, thinking, who is this man mansplaining, but yeah, you know, oh, no. multitask. You cannot, right? I mean, the neuroscientists, male and female, are of one mind on this. That multitasking is an, is is a lie. We just can't do it. It's a, it's a waste of time. You you get distracted. And if you take two people, a monotasker, the slow person, versus the fast multitasker, given the same tasks, the multitasker will take up to twice as long and will make up to twice as many mistakes, right? So perfect example of how slow is actually not slow at all, right? It's more effective. It's more accurate. It's sometimes faster. It gets you better results, and sometimes it will get those results more quickly. I call that the delicious paradox of slow, right? And there's a great military expression that popped into my mind as well, which is um, they say, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And I think that kind I of like that. That it well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely, I, I mean, we've, there's a, a neuroscientist and researcher who I really respect called Paul Kirshner. Um, I haven't had him on the podcast yet, but he, he, He's written this big book about myth busting in education, and one of the main things that he talks about is multitasking being a lot of rubbish. And yeah. uh, you know, we just task switch between different things, and you just get worse at what you're doing when you're juggling lots of different things. You do everything, but you do it at a lower standard. Um, so, so yeah, I think everything that you're you're saying is kind of in line with with, with that kind of research and evidence base. There, um, Carl, I'm conscious of your time. I know that you don't have um, you don't have much time left on the call today. I'm really appreciative of you taking the time to 
to to speak with me through your ironically busy schedule as the as a guru of slow. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with me today. And um, yeah, hopefully we can we can catch up again at some point in the future. Just before we finish, have you got any plans for for any any more books in the pipeline? That uh, yeah, I have two things that I'd love to announce. The first is that my I've just written my first children's book. Oh wow. Which is- which is about slow travel. It's called It's the Journey, Not the Destination. And it's uh, 40 journeys around the world, uh, 10 bike, 10 walking, 10 boat, 10 rail. And it's just a way of introducing the idea of, well, it's introducing children to the richness and wonder of the world um, and the idea of moving through it with less haste and more awareness and stuff. And um, yeah, so it's, it came out It came out in the UK Last month, it's today literally is coming out in Spanish and Catalan and rolling out everywhere else afterwards. So very exciting. My first children's book. Um, yeah. And then Amazing. the other thing, another thing which is exciting as well is that I just got back from New York where I spent a couple of days filming a masterclass for TED. You know, I've given a couple of TED talks, right? Well, TED has just recently decided to create its own online school with courses uh, to a bit like in the masterclass uh, vibe. And yeah. so I've been asked, they asked me to do, make one on how to slow down. So, oh, so amazing. I literally shot it last week. Uh, we're hammering out the last bits and pieces. It will drop in uh, mid-January 2023. So a couple of months, what, two, three months from now. Is that um, free to access or will there be charges? No, no, no it won't be. There's still, because it's, the school is brand new. I'm one of the first people they asked me to make a course. Um, they're still working out the pricing, I think, but I think it's, they're, they're probably going to have two ways of doing it. One, you can just subscribe generally and do any course other, or you can just uh, subscribe to do one course. And when you do the course, you become part of a, it starts at a certain time, you join a group. So you're in a cohort, it's kind of group learning and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end, and then I'm there live at the end, you know, three throughout the year at various points where all the students can come together and share insights and anecdotes and ask questions and things so yeah so it's not just a kind of you know you could do it as a standalone i think maybe not no actually maybe you have to do it in the cohort because that's the whole point of it is that it's 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 communal learning you're, you're learning yeah. as a group and stuff which i think it has so much to recommend oh for, yeah Definitely. For children for everybody right is we're we're social animals that we, we do are social animals yeah we do everything better when we do it socially we do it together um so it's a bit like that um well that's why that the you know the word companion comes from Latin words with bread you know it's kind of when we break bread together you know it's being together right there were that sort of togetherness um, and there's also that wonderful proverb if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together and I think that really sums up the spirit of this TED masterclass so I can't wait for that to come out because I I just love the teaching side of it I come from a teaching family both my parents were teachers I've done some teaching myself in the classroom and so it's a it's a vocation that's very close to my heart and I don't get much chance to do it obviously with the work that i do but i do sometimes get into classrooms and get a little close to the coal face and so this is going to be my real chance to to do some of that because i'll be part of the course sort of teaching it in live in some instances so yeah i can't wait it's a big experiment and we'll see where it goes well i'm super excited for you that sounds amazing carl and i'm sure it would be great and I'll, i'll definitely check it out myself and uh and your children's book what age range is it aimed at uh, well, the publisher says it's, I think it's, they say age six or age seven and up, I think. So okay. it's the kind of, the, the idea is it's kind of a, you know, the parent and the child or the grandparent and the child will sort of, you know, what, this evening, let's, where are we going to go today? You know, tonight, should we walk the Inca trail or 
drift down the Mississippi on a steamboat or cycle the Silk Road or, you know, walk, you know, this, and you, then you, you've got two pages of uh, just beautiful drawings, none of which I did, right? I've got some great illustrators. And, um, but my texts and so on, walking you through some of these places. Um, yeah, it's a real, and for me, it was a lovely thing to do because I, I wrote it during the pandemic at a time when I couldn't travel. So I was, because we were all confined to home, I was able to travel in my mind. And I think that's one of the things about well, books, children's books, but books in general, right? Is that some of the best travel happens inside your head with your imagination. Mm-hmm. And and what I feel the, this book is, is a way for, even if you don't do these journeys yourself, although it's funny, I've heard from a lot of families writing saying, we're kind of using this book as a as a as a guide for our next family trip, right? We're going to go this place and that, you know. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't do that, you can still travel the world on the magic carpet of images and words and so on. And I think that's that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the book. And it was such a joy to read. And my children are, I mean, they're in their twenties now, right? I'm not going to read the book to them, but I've kind of was the other day thinking, you know what? One day I'll read this to my grandchildren. And I thought, wow, what a what a lovely gift to fall out of the sky into my lap. So yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Happy thought there. I'll get a copy for my daughter. I mean, she's only two, but I can just, you know, uh, force it onto her now at a young age with my, <laughs> with my hasty tiger parenting. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Have I learned nothing from your books? Um, oh. Start hothousing her right now. <laughs> yeah. I'll wait till she's a bit older, but, um, <laughs> but, but no, uh, I'll definitely check that out. And, and thank you again so much for your time. I recommend, you know, uh, to to our listeners to check out your um to check out your plethora of uh, of books um even if it is just to get a moment of, of calm and reflection in in our in our busy busy lives um so Carl thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and I hopefully speak with you again soon thank you I've enjoyed it from start to finish and uh, yeah looking forward to the next one. Cheers,